0: From CPR News, it's Colorado Matters. As world leaders, debate how to handle climate change on a global stage. Where do state policies come into play? We talk with a state lawmaker focused on environmental justice. She joins us live from Glasgow. Plus, Colorado's taking the lead to keep methane out of the air. These rules have not led to the end of an industry, but really the beginning of a new one. Then a mother and daughter are stopped at DIA. Does that take suspicion of human trafficking too far? Also, as COVID-19 keeps its grip on Colorado, what's the outlook for the seasonal flu? Plus, Colorado Matters marks 20 years, with the curious names of places that make up our state.
1: You wouldn't think that pioneers coming to a part of Western Colorado would choose something out of literary history to name their community.
2: Support for
0: Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel near Glenwood Springs. And we start today by heading to Glasgow, Scotland, where the United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26, is now in its second week. World leaders have commanded much of the attention there, but in the U.S., state policymakers collectively wield a lot of power over the industries and activities fueling climate change, and some of the most effective levers to respond to a warming planet. Joining us from COP26 is Colorado State Representative Dominique Jackson. She's a Democrat who represents Aurora and Arapahoe County. Representative Jackson, thanks for joining us.
3: Hey, it's fabulous to be
0: with you. So, of course, we are joining you in Scotland. Technical issues may pop up, but we're going to keep going here. You were invited to speak on a panel about environmental justice. And as a state lawmaker, you've sponsored legislation that creates a framework for identifying and reaching out to disproportionately impacted communities to address environmental injustices. So how does focusing on climate inequality and injustice improve environmental outcomes for everyone in Colorado?
3: Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, certainly um, improving air and water quality in disproportionately impacted communities. When we when we raise one boat, as we've all heard, we raise the boats for everybody. We all know that our air quality throughout the front range is uh, pretty dismal. So clearly... Um, uh, improving our air quality along the front range is going to improve our air quality for all of our communities. So it impacts all of us.
0: And, And you tweeted on Monday that the conversations around environmental justice continue on the train, getting coffee, roaming the halls. It's what's on everyone's minds. Talk about the conversations that prompted that tweet.
3: Oh uh, Well, you know, it's, a, yeah, it's amazing. It's like, as I walk through these halls, as I roam through these halls. So the first conversation I had was a panel with a senator from Hawaii, Chris Lee, um, focusing on environmental justice uh, uh extensively. Uh, Senator Lee also uh, has, obviously, a lot of indigenous communities within his home state as well. Um, And then, you know, it extrapolated from there. There were many people there that talked about, we talked a lot about how, you know, we are but conduits for community. And And it's the voices of community that lift up the issues. And at the time, you know, it was a Saturday. And as you well know, there were throngs of people outside raising their voices and saying, listen to us, listen to us, listen to us. And that's exactly what we're doing and it is those voices that we all need to listen to and that is the impetus for all of this work. So, you know, obviously that is the conversation that that continues to rise. It is the voice of the people. So, you know, as you walk through the hallways as you as you get on the trains, as you as you have your coffee, people are are talking about what do we need to hear from folks. And justice is very much part of that conversation.
0: Yeah. Well, and speaking of those protests, uh, Greta Thunberg, she said, you know, the same methods that got us into this in the first place are being talked about at COP26. With you being at these meetings, do you think her concerns are warranted that that we're not getting things done quick enough?
3: Um, I mean, I think that, so I will tell you that you know, uh, the negotiations per se are, um, you know, they're happening down a hallway. There are some parts of them are, you know, things that not everybody can get into. I would say that one of the other uh, engagements that I had, panels that I had on, that I was able to sit on is talked about um, sub-national uh, Work, What the states are doing, you know, and Mm -hmm. how the states actually have a great deal of power. And I sat there with several other lawmakers and we are all able to talk about various and sundry types of work that that we are doing that is making a collective impact and how we all work together and how as states. Um, we, we learn from each other. That's how we learn how to pass the best policy. You know, we, we, um, we learn what works and what doesn't work. And that's how we influence national policy as well. So collectively, we have a great deal of power. And so does something get done? Absolutely. I, and I think that if you ask people in our individual and in our collective communities, does is there work happening? I would say yes.
0: Yeah. Well, the EPA recently proposed federal rules that crack down on methane leaks at oil and gas sites. And those rules were actually inspired by Colorado's methane rules. Uh, Bringing it back to Colorado, what other state environmental rules would you like to see the federal government copy?
3: Well, um, gosh, state environmental rules. Well, I think that, you know, I really would like to see, I mean, I know that I just actually, literally, just a few minutes ago, walked out, had the privilege of being able to be involved in a meeting, in a a plenary uh, session with our very own Representative Joe Neguse, uh, several other uh, representatives, um, including uh, Representative um, Ocasio-Cortez, and uh, they were talking about um, of course, um, our president's infrastructure deal and the Build Back Better Act and the commitments um, to addressing uh, a climate change and um, and the and the things that that they're going to that they're going to accomplish and the, and the things that they want to see accomplished and what one of the things that was that was interesting is the issue of environmental justice came up and it came up in a framework. That was brought up to me on one of the panels that I sat on. It was the last question that was asked was, "What kind of policy do you want to see that you, do you want to work on uh, when you get back?" And as you may or may not know, um, I'm chairing this uh, housing task force right now, and we're doling out ARPA funding for housing, and I'm very invested in decarbonization in in, in housing and. Um, and uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez brought up the very same issue. And that's one of the things that I'm hearing a lot at this conference. Uh, the other issue that's coming up from a lot of people is, is decarbonization across all kinds of different sectors. But all this is yeah. sudden, everybody's also talking about it in the housing sector. So, I mean, it's just fascinating how how everybody seems to just like somehow collectively get on the same page about the same issues. It's just fascinating.
0: Well, and and do you think Colorado can achieve net zero that that is balancing the amount of greenhouse gas produced with the amount removed from the atmosphere? It it, it is a key goal of COP26, right?
3: It is a key goal of COP26. I think that um, there's going to have to be Some extensive policy. I mean, you know, in order to achieve net zero, I mean, to be able to to balance, I mean, you have to be able to, you know, you have to be able to capture carbon. You have to, you know, you know, phase out, uh, you know, fossil fuels, and then you know, the issue of carbon credits, you know, has to be on the table as well. So I think that there would have to be um, some policy work to be done.
0: So do you think that that could happen in Colorado? Are there ideas that you're hearing there in Scotland that you could bring back home to Colorado to help spur some of these climate change concerns?
3: I think that there's certainly conversations to be had. Um, You know, again, that's one of the beautiful things about being here is you never know the conversations that you're going to have. And, and it's just, you know, when you're, it's, and it's, it's, it's the, it's the expertise, you know, that you Mm. get from people who have actually passed that kind of policy and the lessons that they've learned. And there's no one size fits all for any particular state. And so, and so it's, 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 it's wonderful and beautiful to have somebody who has done the work and to learn what has, has, has been, you know, the pitfalls or the successes for them and to be able to work with your administration, to work with your colleagues, and most importantly, to work with your community, your businesses, your stakeholders, right, and to figure out what is best for your state um, because I know I personally care about everybody in every corner of our state and it's really important to bring everybody in the table to make sure that whatever we're doing works best for everybody in Colorado.
0: Representative Jackson, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Democrat Dominique Jackson represents Aurora and Arapahoe County in the state house. She's one of just a few state lawmakers from the U.S. attending the U.N. Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, Scotland. The conference ends on Friday. When President Biden announced new regulations last week to curb methane emissions from oil and gas drilling operations as a way to fight climate change, Colorado, as you heard, wasn't far from mind. The president took a page from what the state's been doing for years. CPR Sam
2: Brash reports on that. It's a crisp, rocky mountain morning when Dan Zimmerly watches a drone take off in Fort Collins. It flies over what looks like an oil and gas well pad. Really, it's a kind of facade in the
4: foothills. Well, I like to call it Hollywood well pads. They look like well pads, they emit gas like well pads, but there's no wells under the pads. It's all fake, just like Hollywood.
2: It's like a movie set because the tanks and the pipes don't actually produce any fossil fuels. Instead, they're rigged to mimic an old, leaky oil and gas operation. Companies pay to use the facility to test their latest equipment, and the researchers help the industry tune and certify their leak detection technology. Zimmerle directs the laboratory for Colorado State University.
4: They have a sensor on the drone, okay, and as it moves around the site, uh, they can sense the gas concentration and then estimate where the the emission is coming from. Other examples
2: include high-tech cameras, methane-sniffing cars, or long-range lasers. All could be critical as the planet confronts climate change. That's because methane packs far more heat-trapping power than carbon dioxide, its more common climate-warming cousin. It also disappears more quickly. Those two facts are why scientists say stopping methane leaks might be one of the easiest, fastest ways to confront the crisis.
4: So it's a non-trivial
2: impact. The Biden administration has been crafting a methane crackdown for months. And to do it, they've been turning to Colorado. Andrew Baer is a spokesperson for the state air quality division.
0: We confirm that we have had conversations with the federal government on ways to improve and or strengthen potential federal requirements for oil and gas operations.
2: The oil and gas industry helped write Colorado's methane rules alongside environmental groups. Many of the state's biggest industry groups now support those tougher regulations. We have a um, really great example in Colorado. This is John Goldstein with the Environmental Defense Fund. The advocacy group pushed Colorado to become the first state to regulate methane in 2014. He says the effort has proven to be an environmental and economic success story.
4: These rules have you know, not led to the end of, of an industry,
1: but really the beginning of a new one
2: a new industry dedicated to finding and plugging methane leaks. His group recently completed a survey that found 50 firms on the job in Colorado. But not every oil and gas company is excited. Sam Bradley manages the Small Operator Society.
5: There's a group of about 60 operators like me, you know, family-owned businesses.
2: Since his company produces a heavier kind of oil, he says the state initially overestimated his methane emissions.
5: So that's why, like, large-scale statewide blanket emissions don't take into account the fact that kind of every well and every company is like a fingerprint. They're all different and unique.
2: Dan Zimmerly, the methane detection scientist, basically agrees.
4: Different sizes of sites will require different types of solutions. We know that already. In the
2: future, he imagines planes or satellites could quickly identify big leaks. Then other tools
4: could be tailored to specific sites. The real answer in the end will be some hybrid of multiple different solution types. You can use something that would find large leaks fast and then something that would find small leaks eventually.
2: He says his lab has shown the U.S. has plenty of tools to find methane. The big question now, whether they can be scaled up quickly enough to actually slow the climate crisis. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News.
0: The EPA estimates the new regulations on methane leaks on new and existing wells and pipelines will cut 41 million tons of methane emissions between now and 2035. Authorities are beefing up their efforts to stop human trafficking. Signs at Denver International Airport and even on planes implore people who are victims to come forward. But one mother says a recent incident where she was interrogated by police went too far.
6: You the flight didn't... attendants were just concerned about about the behavior okay, okay. when you boarded the aircraft. But, uh, okay. That's all we're following up on. We're not sus- we're not suspecting anything.
0: Mary McCarthy recorded that incident. It happened just as she and her ten year old daughter were getting off a plane at DIA. Mary, thanks for joining us.
6: Hi, Nathan, and thanks for talking about this story. It's an important issue, obviously.
0: So this incident started on a Southwest flight from San Jose to Denver. You and your daughter took last month. And I understand you were coming home because your brother had had died suddenly.
6: That's right. So my daughter Moira and I, we live in Los Angeles. She's just 10. And the night before, very sadly, we had gotten um, a call from my family back in Denver that my brother had died of a blood clot just out of the blue. So we were obviously devastated. I'm a single mom. She's He's in many ways like a father to her, so it was very upsetting. You know, so we hopped online, got the next, next tickets out, which were the next morning. Yeah. Had an uneventful flight from L. A. to San Jose, and then we get on right. the second flight, uh, San Jose to Denver. Um, the only thing out of the ordinary was we didn't have seats together, and I asked people to accommodate us with the permission of the flight attendants. Right, um, and, and, and you,
0: you're. And you're white and you have a daughter who is black. And apparently, like like you're saying, a flight attendant was suspicious that your daughter may have been a victim of human trafficking. So, so explain that plane ride a bit more in depth.
6: Yeah, so it's, you know, I wish I could give you more detail on it, Nathan, but that literally is it. Like, there was nothing out of the ordinary except for mm. the fact that I asked people to move. And again, because flying is really high tense these days, you know, obviously between we've had tight security for a long time, but now a lot of people are tense about masks. So rather than just asking passengers, like people do all the time to move if they want to sit together, you know, um, I actually did first go to the flight attendants and I said, you know, do you mind? um helping us. Um, Because, you know, this death in our family, it was very forthcoming. I explained to them that my daughter is only 10, because she looks a lot older than she is. And they said they wouldn't help us. But they said it was fine for me to ask people. So we Mm -hmm. got people to move. They were so nice. We sat down and it was just an ordinary flight until we get off. And you know, we're accosted by armed police who try to separate us and question my daughter separately from me.
0: Yeah, and we heard a bit of that recording you made when that police officer and a Southwest Airline employee started asking you questions. And, and you say this had to do with racist assumptions about being a mixed-race family. Talk about that.
6: So, you know, I my daughter is a mixed-race. She's my biological daughter. Um, interestingly, we do look an awful lot alike <laughs> for anyone mm-hmm. who can see past the difference in skin tone. But uh, once the police said to me, you've been accused of suspicious behavior, you and your daughter, um, and they didn't actually mention human trafficking that day, um, things clicked in my mind. Because as a mom, again, of a mixed race family, I'm aware that these things can happen. And uh, frankly, that's why I started recording, because I knew that we had certainly not acted suspiciously. And I suspected this had a whole lot to do um, with the fact that we look different and nothing to do with anything that we ourselves had done.
0: Yeah. I I know this has happened to other families, including my own. I was raised in a mixed race family. My parents are white. I am not. And as a young kid, I remember being stopped going over the Canadian border with my parents and they were told they might have trouble getting me back in the U S very clearly referencing our different skin colors. Has anything like your experience happened to you before that you attribute to being a mixed race family?
6: Well, first, thanks for your empathy. And I I, I think you understand this because of your your personal situation, Nathan. Uh, Nothing like this has happened. But I'll tell you this, as a single mom, I've always raised her on my own. And as a mom in a mixed race family, um, I'm aware of the challenges that might happen when traveling. Uh, And some of it is okay. Like any TSA or other airport security, they have the right to check in to make sure that you know, kids are traveling with, with their right grown-ups. So um, because I'm aware of the possible questions we might get asked, I travel with her birth certificate. And that's mm-hmm. known, you know, among single parents and among mixed race families, as some of the documentation you can use to show that, you know, you're the parent who has permission to travel with them, and also establishing your familial relationship. The funny thing is, whether it was if this had happened at TSA, it would have been very different. That's, that's appropriate. Um, But even if the flight attendants had come and chatted with me, (laughs) or, or, you know, just to kind of get a sense of who we are, I'm super chatty. And if there's one thing that I'm going to talk ad nauseum about, it's my daughter. So if they wanted to come and, you know, get a sense of us, um, as flight attendants often do, like one of the great parts of traveling is often they come and chat with your kid and give them a special treat or something. Uh, We would have been very open to all of that, but they didn't. Instead, they called us, you know, called the police on us on suspicion of a very serious crime and that's not okay.
0: Well, the Denver police told us you were called by a human trafficking detective who told you the case was closed as quote unfounded. And we contacted Southwith airlines and they responded by emailing, saying quote, we were disheartened to learn of this mother's account when traveling with her daughter We are conducting a review of the situation internally, and we will be reaching out to the customer to address her concerns and offer our apologies for her experience traveling with us. How do you think Southwest could rectify this in your mind?
6: So I want Southwest to be held fully accountable, uh, in part because... I've received an outpouring of messages from people around the country saying that they have dealt with similar things on Southwest and on other airlines. And when I mean um, be held accountable, they need to answer. They need to give some real answers as to why this happened, which to this point they haven't done. But they also Mm -hmm. need to step up their training. You know, if you're going to train people in human trafficking, fine, but also train them in how to not be a racist.
0: But but where do you draw the line between helping people who are in danger and, and possibly making some of these uncomfortable, unfounded accusations?
6: Uh, you have a checklist. It's not, you know, it's not rocket science. You know, I'm a TV reporter who's, you know, covered stories like this. I know myself a lot about human trafficking, and there are signs you can look out for. But um, again, one of the very first things is go and chat with the people, get a sense of them, which they never bothered to do. And the, the heart of what really bothers me of what Southwest did to us, Nathan, is that when the human trafficking unit called me, um, first of all, they didn't tell me it was closed they called Hmm. to follow up on their suspicions. (laughs) Um, But I had that officer, that investigator read me the account of what happened from Southwest and Denver Police. And sadly, that account was riddled with lies. And I'll just give you a few examples. What Southwest claimed that day, uh, when we were on the flight, a flight attendant reported us for one allegedly bo- boarding suspiciously late which doesn't make sense like either you're on the plane or you're off like i don't know what this in between suspiciously late is plus we were in the last boarding group so of course we were <laughs> among the yeah. last passengers um the flight attendant claimed my daughter and i didn't talk to each other throughout the flight which uh we were double masked you know um I I don't know how anyone could judge whether we're speaking to each other unless they were sitting there, you know, staring us down the whole time. And and of course, we were talking like any any mother and child sitting together. And she also claimed that I forbade my child from talking to the flight crew. So I I, I thing to file a report, but you can't can't lie about people.
0: Right. And and that's that's a question I want to bring up as a final question quickly. You know. Is that why you're speaking out instead of keeping this such a private matter? Because I'm assuming your daughter it, it remains traumatized by the instant, as do you.
6: She's deeply traumatized by it. I spoke out initially because uh, I wanted to harness my white privilege. I'm a white woman who these things, you know, hmm. I don't have to experience this in my day-to-day life. Probably like you I, I, I don't know what race your mom is, Nathan, but um The the parents generally are less vulnerable unless they're parents of color. So in these situations, it's the people of color and the children of color that are vulnerable. So I'm going to speak far and wide on this so that the next time a flight attendant or a police officer or someone else wants to call the police on a mixed race family or any person of color, they will hopefully stop and double check their biases and say, am I calling because I'm really suspicious or have I double checked to make sure that this isn't primarily to do with the race.
0: Mary, thanks so much for joining us.
6: Thanks, Nathan. Have a great day.
0: Mary McCarthy and her daughter were detained at Denver International Airport last month after a Southwest flight from San Jose. A flight attendant had reported she suspected human trafficking. McCarthy said it's because she is white and her daughter is black. She and her daughter live in Los Angeles. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado hospitals are struggling,
7: treating more than 1,200 COVID-19 patients amid tight capacity and staffing shortages.
4: It's no longer a question of ventilators. It's a question of safely staffed beds.
7: Under new executive health orders, hospitals can now refuse a patient so they can be transferred to another less crowded hospital. Doctors worry the state could be in for some of its roughest months of the pandemic. The story is at
0: CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel in Garfield County. The outlook for the upcoming flu season is extra complicated this year. It's never an exact science, plus COVID-19 has blurred this picture. Dr. Richard Webby is an infectious disease specialist at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. He directs the WHO's Collaborating Center for Influenza Studies. We spoke to him last year about the 2021 flu season nationally and in Colorado. He's here to tell us what researchers know about this year's season. Welcome back to the program. Hey, good morning, Nathan. So we know that last year's flu season was pretty mild in large part because of masking and social distancing with COVID-19. You typically look to the Southern Hemisphere to get a sense of what we can expect. What happened during their winter that just ended?
8: Yeah. So, un- unfortunately, the southern hemisphere was not is not much used to us again this year. So, you know, we mm. know that flu is a flu, is sort of a snowbird, right? So it it travels the winter seasons, and you know we, as you just said, we kind of looked to our friends down south to give us some hint about what viruses may be coming. But you know they went through another season where there was really low flu activity, again fueled by these. Uh, the COVID precautions so yeah unfortunately they didn't give us much of a heads up about what's coming this year
0: so does a mild flu season last year have any bearing on this flu season because people might just not have that immunity built up
8: yeah so it's a uh, it's a great question and and no one really has the answer but that's it's kind of what we're thinking if if you think about a typical flu season. We think somewhere between 20 to 30 percent of the population gets exposed to the virus. You know, they're not all going to get sick. Some may not even know they have it, but they get exposed and they're, you know, I I think we're used to talking about population immunity now, right? So their immunity at the individual level gets boosted and our population immunity to flu gets boosted. That happens every season when flu comes around. And, you know, now we've been through one and a half, just about two seasons where none of that's happened. You know, there is a concern that, you know, when the virus comes back, which it will, you know, there's going to be a little Mm. bit more room for it to spread and cause disease. So, you know, that that is the, I think, the biggest concern we have going into sort of the unknowns of this flu season.
0: So so back to the Southern Hemisphere, uh, if they had a mild flu season, why wouldn't we?
8: Well, I think they their mild flu season was again it's because a lot of you know countries down there had, had shut up borders, um, certainly wearing masks, so a lot of social distancing. You know, as you know, mm. particularly here in the U.S., as we go into this flu season, we're loosening up those um, things, and so I think that's that's a concern that we you know we're not necessarily going to mirror what happened down there just because you know, we're in a different place um, You know, six months on from where they were in terms of where we are in the pandemic. So as we loosen yeah. things up, the virus is probably going to get out and spread.
0: So flu season typically peaks between December and February. It's obviously very tough to predict a flu season, and especially when you factor COVID in. But are there any predictions about this year?
8: Uh, no and that's again the big unknown you know unfortunately we could tell you with a lot of confidence and you know before this covid pandemic came along that all we can tell you is we are going to have a flu season you know to be honest we don't no. even we can't even say that this year it's possible again we'll breeze through this without much flu activity um, and but the possibilities are all the way up to you know quite a f- severe season just because we don't have as much immunity as we typically do
0: well, the thing is, we do have a flu vaccine, and 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 how effective is that this year?
8: Yeah, so it's a little, of course, it's a little early to tell exactly how effective that vaccine will be, because it depends a lot on what viruses that vaccine has to protect against, and you know we're not sure what exactly that will be yet. Yeah, you know, the flu vaccine, you know, it's it's a very important public health tool. It's not the most effective vaccine we have, and in a good year. It's somewhere about 50 percent effective. So, you know, it's not going to stop this virus circulating. But again, the more people we can get to go out and get it, you know, the more impact that that vaccine will have on sort of the trajectory of the season. So, yeah, not, not the world's greatest vaccine, but it does work and it's absolutely something we all should be running out to get.
0: Do you have any sense of whether people may be less or maybe more inclined to get a flu vaccine this year because of everything that's going on with COVID?
8: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, right? So I, you know, what I'm hoping is that you know a lot of the pushback we've had against the COVID vaccine doesn't spill over into flu. I mean, yeah, mm. we know certainly populations in the community that never get flu vaccine, some that get it all the time and some get it sometimes and not others. You know, typically we don't have the same, I guess, public debates about flu vaccine as we have for COVID. So I'm really hoping that doesn't spill over into it, you know, and the fact that, you know, we are used to getting vaccines and stuff now. So maybe, you know, a glass half full approach that, you know, maybe we'll get a few more people willing to roll on out and roll up their sleeve.
0: Final question and quickly: Colorado's rate of COVID cases is among the highest in the nation. Could this upcoming flu season test hospital capacity even more, given where we are here in Colorado?
8: Yes, definitely. And that's the, again the big concern with a, a flu season. If we're adding flu season and the impact that it always has on top of COVID, you know, particularly in places like Colorado where you're seeing activity, that's yeah going to put more stress on an already struggling healthcare infrastructure.
0: Thank you, Dr. Richard Webby, for joining us. Thanks, Nathan. It's always a pleasure. Dr. Webby directs the World Health Organization's collaborating Center for Influenza Studies. We've been talking about this upcoming flu season. At least 80 mobile home parks have gone up for sale in Colorado in the last year, and a growing movement hopes to give residents more power over what happens next. CPR's Andrew Kenny reports on an unusual deal that could change the destiny of a community
5: in Leadville. Cecia Santien's boots crunch through the snow on a stormy fall day. She's giving a tour of the mobile home community where she lives, an assortment of about 30 blue, green, and brown homes in the high mountain town of Leadville.
9: Okay, pues este es el, la pequeña comunidad por la que estamos trabajando. She and
5: her neighbors live only two blocks from Leadville's famous historic Main Street. With lot rents that run about $400 a month, it's one of the most affordable spots in town. But that convenient location has turned recently into a source of worry.
9: And what's happening over here? Just across
5: the street, construction crews are working on dozens of new homes that will sell for more than half a million dollars each. When Santia and her husband saw the construction site, they wondered, would their own land be sold and redeveloped too? And they feared that's exactly what was happening when a stranger came to their community this year. He was handing out flyers for a meeting. Santian and her husband decided not to attend.
9: Ah, porque pensamos que, bueno, al menos yo pensé que las noticias no eran buenas. They
5: figured it was bad news.
9: no queríamos saber de lo malo que nos esperaba, pues.
5: The residents of this neighborhood are almost entirely Spanish-speaking. They travel far and wide for jobs in construction and cleaning. Most have lived here for years or decades, partially because there's nothing like it for miles around.
9: La comunidad del ladio en los últimos años Está vendiendo su terreno a otras estados.
5: That's another neighbor, Esther Soto, explaining that a boom of out-of-state investment has left few options for people who don't have good credit or immigration status or money. But the residents soon learned that their fears were only partially right. The landlord did want to sell, but he wanted to sell to them, the residents.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I guess I'm a little... I'm a little unique in in our situation.
5: That's Matthew Bransfield. He bought the place in 2019 for a million dollars, according to property records, with the backing of his small Denver-based investment group. For many investors, the draw of mobile homes is that you can collect steady rent without taking on a lot of financial obligations.
0: It's really minimal compared to the upkeep and maintenance of other asset classes.
5: Mobile home parks can return up to 12% of the original investment every year. That's attracted a lot of interest from venture capital funds and Wall Street investors, which means Bransfield has had a lot of competition as he's tried to acquire more parks. So he's decided to start quitting the business. Um, I don't know. It just feels like the the right it feels like a good thing. He could sell the Leadville park to one of those investors, or he could try to redevelop it into something new, but he had heard about a growing movement. He decided to approach a regional nonprofit and see if he could sell it to the tenants instead.
0: And it just feels like something good that we can do inside of the community and inside of an asset class that's been, in many cases, historically predatory upon the end tenant.
5: The push for resident-owned communities has grown to include hundreds of mobile home parks across the country since the 1980s. But it's pretty new in Colorado. The community in Leadville might become only the sixth in this state to be purchased by residents in recent years, out of more than 700 parks that are registered with the state.
2: I sometimes feel like a snake oil
7: salesman until they really understand you know what, that we truly do want to
5: do this. That's Andy Cadlick, who's helping coordinate the deal through the nonprofit Thistle. He was the one who knocked on doors to introduce the idea to residents, and he understood why they were skeptical. In the resident-owned model, communities take out relatively low-interest loans to cover the cost of purchases. Residents often face steep initial rent hikes to cover the costs, and they may be on the hook for future capital needs like sewer repairs. Finally, they'll have to agree to never sell or redevelop the land, But over a few meetings, those doubts turned to,
0: okay. now it's more of a sense of like, yes, this is going to happen. We might be able to own our community.
5: That's Ayudelia Contreras, an organizer with the local nonprofit Lake County Build a Generation, which is helping residents through the process. Once the opportunity became clear, though, she said that the residents took charge.
0: Here, what the difference is that a lot is at stake. They're at risk of losing their homes when there is no other housing options here in Lake County.
5: If the purchase goes through, it would be a relatively rare victory for residents in Colorado. A new law is supposed to give all residents a chance to bid on their park before it's sold, but advocates say that success often hinges on having a cooperative landlord, someone who actually wants to sell to residents, instead of taking an easier deal with a big company. Some landlords have ignored or rejected offers, helping to defeat, for example, one effort in Fort Collins. To have more victories, advocates say they need more funding, more help from local governments and more relationships with landlords and residents before the properties go up for sale. Up in Leadville, though, hopes are running high for now.
7: Right now, the engineers are, are scheduling their um, inspections of the property within the next few weeks here. Um, you know, our goal is to hopefully close by the end of this year.
5: A study in New Hampshire gives reason for some optimism. Researchers found that resident owned communities tended to offer below market rent. And the national nonprofit that supports them says that none have failed financially. Josefina Chárez has seen the Leadville Park sold three times in her 30 years there. She hopes this will be the last time. She and her neighbors already have a new name.
9: Ah, Cooperativa Nueva, Nueva Union, si es cierto. Es el nombre de, que le pusimos.
5: Cooperative New Union. Its president, Esther Soto, thinks it could be the beginning of something bigger.
9: She says
5: that even if none of them could afford to buy their individual properties, they can still create a permanent community together. Oh my goodness. At their home on the north side of the park, Ceci Santian's family says they're ready in the last few months as they gained faith in the idea of a purchase they started replacing the floors and taking down the popcorn ceilings
9: lo todo liso lo pintamos cambiamos estamos en el proyecto de cambiar puertas el piso lo pusimos diferente
5: they figure they're going to be here for a long time i'm Andrew Kenny
0: cpr news read more stories about colorado's housing crisis and hear from the people who are living through it at cpr.org Newcastle was named in the late 1880s after a coal mining town in England. There was a lot of coal around here, too. Exploring why places in Colorado are named what they are is something author Jim Flynn explores in his new book, A Compendium of Curious Colorado Place Names. He spoke with Ryan Warner in 2017. The conversation is one of the favorites we're visiting as Colorado Matters marks 20 years of sharing stories from around the state.
7: Before we dig into some of the stranger names, I really enjoyed the story of a place that seems straightforward, Golden, right? You're thinking, well, there's a lot of gold and gold rush history here, so it must be named for gold. That is not the case.
1: Correct. It actually came from a man named Thomas Golden, who was an early prospector in what is now Jefferson County. And he started a mining camp in that area, and it picked up his name, the Golden Mining Camp. And That grew into the town of Golden, so it didn't have a darn thing to do with gold.
7: But it's an awfully good last name to have. It worked out (laughs) well. I don't know
1: whether he ever found any or not, but Mm -hmm. that's where it came from.
7: On to the name of our state, Colorado. What does it mean?
1: That's a Spanish word that refers to a color, a kind of reddish-brown color, and probably the best English translation of that color would be ruddy, R-U-D-D-Y. And early Spanish-speaking... Explorers in Colorado gave that name to the Colorado River, Rio, Colorado, because of the uh, sedimentation in the river that can create a sort of brown-reddish color. And then their na- name carried over to the territory of Colorado in 1861 and the state of Colorado in 1876. I had a lot of aha moments
7: reading this, and one of my uh, personal favorites is "Werfano." So that's the county in southern Colorado. I knew it meant orphan in Spanish, but I was not aware of why.
1: Yeah, it does mean orphan in Spanish. And uh, for many, many centuries, probably, there has been a very prominent landmark just to the north of Walsenburg and right along the I-25 corridor on the east side of the highway that was given that name because it's a mound of volcanic rock that sits out in the middle of a flat plain area all by itself, and it's kind of an orphan. So that's the derivation of the name. And then it carried over to the county when Colorado became a territory in 1861 and as one of the original 17 counties in the territory. Let's stick with
7: southern Colorado and the town of Swink. It's named for a farmer who really transformed that part of the state.
1: Right. A man named George Swink. He came here from the East Coast, and one of the things he missed was melons. And he was talking to a friend one day and he said, boy, I really miss the melons that I could grow back on the East Coast. And his friend uh, went to someone he knew in Massachusetts. And as I recall, it was a former governor of Massachusetts. And uh, that person sent out some seeds to George for melons. And George used those seeds to begin to develop uh, what became the Rocky Ford cantaloupes and watermelons, and he basically made that part of Colorado famous as a melon growing area. It seems that we should know
7: that name Swink better, given how much melon we eat from that part of the state.
1: Yeah, although if you've ever driven through the town, you know, you you might not (laughs) notice... (laughs)
7: what's the deal with steamboat springs so the river through town just is not large enough for a steamboat that can't no, be where the na- name comes from
1: that's not it the name comes from a spring a geothermal spring in the area that actually made a chugging sound like a steamboat so the spring was named steamboat spring and then that name carried over to the town unfortunately in the early 1900s a rail line was built through the area of the spring and somehow in the process they wiped out the chugging part of the spring so it chugs no more
7: before we explore some of my epiphanies here what what were some of your favorite stories behind place names
1: well you know the one that amazes me that people just don't seem to know ryan is denver i mean i've lived in colorado 40 whatever years and when i started working on this book i didn't know where denver came from and okay uh, i have yet to find anyone who Did
7: and it's a it's a guy.
1: Yeah. He was James W. Denver was the governor of the territory of Kansas in eighteen fifty-eight when William Larimer started a settlement out here, and Larimer was a land speculator and he was from Kansas and he knew uh, Denver and kind of wanted to schmooze him in pursuit of governmental favors for his new settlement. So the name carried over to the new settlement that Larimer and some others started that grew into what we now know as Denver. So the name came from the territorial governor of Kansas, James W. Denver.
7: The name Montrose um, on the Western Slope has a literary connection, and I I just loved learning about this.
1: Yeah, you wouldn't think that pioneers coming to a part of Western Colorado would uh, choose something out of literary history to name their community, but that's what happened here. The name came from a a novel from uh, written by Sir Walter Scott that was published in 1819 called A Legend of Montrose. And the novel was actually about a steamy love triangle, but in the background there's a civil war going on in Scotland in the 1640s, and one of the important players there was the Earl of Montrose. So somehow that worked its way into uh, our current city of Montrose. Sneffels.
7: Matt Sneffels, one of Colorado's 14,000-foot peaks also may have a literary connection. It's such a strange word, Sneffels. Where does it come from?
1: Yeah, there's still a mystery about that, but the theory that I like best, and this may be as much legend as fact, but uh, we have another novel, Jules Verne's 1864 novel, Journey to the Center of the Earth, Right. had a volcano in Iceland that had the name Sneffel, S-N-A-E-F-E-L-L, and uh, that was where the hole in the earth was that allowed you to travel to the center of the earth. (laughs) So the the mountain here in Colorado was named probably 10 years later. So there's a chronology there that comes pretty close together, 1864, 1874. So that's one of the theories. Uh, Another one that's probably kind of silly is that it was so cold and miserable in this part of Colorado that the miners in the 1870s all caught colds and had the sniffles and that carried (laughs) over to the name of the mountain.
7: Yes, but Mount Sniffles somehow doesn't have the same gravitas even as Sniffles. No, it just doesn't work. Uh, Another peak, Quandary, what's it referring to?
1: Yeah, and that one is interesting also. There were a group of miners uh, on what is now Quandary Peak, and they came upon an ore deposit that they couldn't identify. And so they found themselves in a Quandary. And I don't know whether they ever figured out what the mineral was, but at least this inspired them to name the peak Quandary Peak.
7: One of my favorite place names is Dotsero. So it's along I-70 in Eagle County, and it's it's two words put together. What is Dotsero?
1: Well, the uh, theory there, and I'll use that word because I'm not sure anybody knows for sure, but there was an old railroad map for the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad, and it showed a route line, a railroad route line, and there was a starting point on this map for the rail line, Uh, with a decimal point and a zero, so dot zero. Dot zero becomes
7: dot zero,
1: potentially. Something like that. And then the community uh, developed around that location, and and so the name evolved out of that.
7: Uh, As you write, place names may come from people's names, from books, as we've heard, from geology, nature. And, of course, uh, lots of places in Colorado carry American Indian names, Uray, Arapaho, Manitou. Uh, But tell us what Yampa means. Well, yeah. And that's the river that runs through Steamboat, by the way, also in Grant right, County. It's
1: one of Colorado's major rivers. It goes some 250 miles and uh, to a confluence with the Green River, which then goes into the Colorado River. But, and Yamp is a town. Right. And But the name is an Indian word that referred to a plant that uh, at least many, many years ago was very abundant in northwest Colorado and was a major food source for the Native Americans living in that area. And if you cook the roots of this plant, it produces something in the nature of water chestnuts. Uh, And again, it was a staple of the Indian populations in that area. The Indians also discovered that if you ate it raw, it worked very well as a laxative. And uh, doing my research for this book, I decided to stay away from that. I didn't really want to experiment. And
7: uh, I see, to try it for yourself. Uh, So who who knew that uh, the Yampa River might be related to a laxative? in some distant regard.
1: Yeah, hadn't thought of that either.
0: Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thank you. Jim
0: Flynn wrote the book A Compendium of Curious Colorado Place Names. He spoke with Ryan Warner in 2017. We're revisiting some of our favorite conversations as Colorado Matters celebrates 20 years of sharing stories from our state. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team, Carl Bielek,
1: Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer,
3: Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher,
1: Matt hers Michael Hughes,
9: Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill,
0: Pedro Lumbrano,
9: Patrice Mondragon,
7: Shane Rumsey, Ryan
0: Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel, with special thanks to Joe Wirtz. We always love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Colorado Matters. I'm at n or send us an email, Colorado matters at cpr.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.